Good evening. It's glad to see everybody here tonight. I know Brother Randy and his family is a great asset to this congregation. I think everybody would agree with me. And we all look forward to getting to hear the sermons that he preaches. And we always hate times when he's not here with us. I know I always do because I really look forward to getting to hear him. But I know he's, he's doing a great work for the kingdom that God is using him right now in his, in his work to spread the word throughout the kingdom. So we want to pray with brother, for Brother Randy and his family as they're gone and, and pray that the, the lessons, the lectureship that he's doing will be able to reach out and touch somebody else's life. I told Brother Trail a couple weeks ago that I hated I missed his sermon on that Sunday morning, but I did get a copy of it and I took it home and I listened to it, and he asked a very interesting question in that sermon, something that I want to reiterate right now that I think is probably one of the most important questions that anybody could ever be asked. Where are you going? When this life is over, where are we going? What more important question could we possibly ask ourselves or ask to somebody else? Think about that question for a minute. Think about it as we go through this sermon. Let me ask it in a different way. How many sins will it take to send us to hell? How many times do I have to do something wrong in my life for me to lose heaven? A hundred times? Twenty times? Ten times? How many times is that? Turn with me to James. James chapter 2. James chapter 2 and verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. According to the Bible, it takes one sin. That's it. One sin and we lose heaven. Keep that in mind. Let's ask another question. Reiterate something else that Trail asked last, or when he did his sermon. Have we ever been upset? Has it ever bothered us when an erring Christian comes back to Christ. Think about that for a minute. Has it ever hurt us inside that we didn't want to see somebody come back to Christ? Have we ever held a grudge against a brother in Christ? Have we ever had one of those quote-unquote understood agreements between us that you leave me alone, I'll leave you alone, we'll go our separate ways, we don't need to talk to each other, we don't need to see each other, and everybody's going to be happy? We just kind of sweep it under the rug and hope that it's going to go away. Just let that sink in for a minute. I know everybody has disagreements and situations happen in their life, but do we allow that to drag on? Let's look at what the Bible says about this. As I stated last time I, I did a sermon, I'm a very strong believer in letting the scriptures speak for themselves. So I want everybody to get their Bibles out, get ready to look up some passages with me, and let's read them together. Turn with me to Philemon, if you will. Turn with me to Philemon. Just to kind of set the scene a little bit, if you remember towards the end of Acts, um, before Paul went and appealed to Caesar, Felix had left him in prison for approximately two years. It's believed that the letter to Philemon was written during that two years that Paul was in prison. So just kind of let you know the background of where this is coming from. Let's start reading in verse 1. It says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer. Keep that in mind here that Philemon is a Christian. Okay? He is a fellow laborer, a fellow brother of Paul's. Verses 2 through 7 are kind of some greetings, some encouragements to Philemon. Let's skip over those and let's jump down to verse 8. It says, Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Basically, Paul's telling Philemon here, he said, I could preach to you. I could lecture to you right now if I wanted to, but I don't want to do that. I want to speak to you as a friend. I want to kind of try to reason with you. Let's keep reading in verse 10. It says, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains. 
who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. Onesimus was a slave that belonged to Philemon. More importantly, he ran away from Philemon. He did something to Philemon that was wrong. He, he abandoned him. He left him without the help that he needed. But how did Paul and Onesimus meet each other? The Bible doesn't really specify that, but we can speculate that the chances are when Onesimus ran away, he likely went to Rome. Paul meets up with him somewhere there. Paul teaches him. Onesimus becomes a Christian. He is now, he's now profitable both to Paul and Philemon. But notice that, that Paul makes no excuse for Onesimus. He says, look, I know that Onesimus was unprofitable to you. I know that he is basically worthless to you right now because he abandoned you. He did you wrong. But now notice the statement that Paul makes. He says Onesimus is now not only profitable to me, he's also profitable to you. He's profitable because he's now a Christian. Christians are profitable to God. Think of what Brother Randy's doing right now. He's going out and spreading the word throughout the kingdom. We are profitable to God if we're Christians, but not only that, Paul confirms right here we're profitable to each other. We're here for encouragements to each other. We're here to befriend each other and help each other through this life. So Onesimus has now become profitable to Philemon. Keep in mind what we mentioned at the beginning of the sermon. Do you have that grudge against somebody? Is there a fellow Christian that for some reason you just can't get along with? Let's continue reading. Let's look at verse 12. It says, I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. We don't exactly know what Onesimus and Paul's relationship was. We don't know what Onesimus was doing for Paul. But Paul does say that he was ministering to me in my chains. It's possible that if it was allowed that Onesimus was maybe bringing him things while he was in prison... It's possible he was just visiting Paul, that he was just being a spiritual encouragement for him while he's locked up in prison. We don't know what that is, but Paul understands that Onesimus is still a slave to Philemon. And so he doesn't want to tell Philemon, look, I'm going to keep Onesimus here with me because I need him, and then allow Philemon an opportunity to just wash his hands of the situation. He said, look, I'm going to send Onesimus back to you. You make the decision. I would like for him to stay here with me, but I do know that you need him. I want you to voluntarily decide what you want to do. Let's continue reading in verse 15. This is a passage that was read for us earlier, and this kind of has the meat of what I want to hit on in this passage. Verse 15, it says, For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul points out something here that we hear a lot of times throughout the world. God works in mysterious ways. Paul's saying, For all we know, Onesimus left you and abandoned you, but God had a higher purpose for it. If he had never left you, he may have never become a Christian. He now has become your brother in Christ, even though he did you wrong. Think back to an Old Testament example of that. Everybody knows the story of Joseph. How his brothers sold him into slavery, and then look what happened to him. And he said that his brothers meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. We don't know why things happen like they do. We don't know why, why people do they may do things wrong to us at times. We may not understand it, but God has a purpose for things that happen in this life. But think of it on Philemon's point. Like I said, Onesimus did him wrong. He did something wrong to him, just completely abandoned him. It would be hard enough for, for Philemon to try to accept a slave as a brother, but now he has to accept a slave as a brother that has abandoned him, that's run away from him. How's Philemon going to do this? Let's look in verse 17. 
Paul tells him, he says, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. Paul basically says, pretend I was coming to you. You would with open arms come out and welcome me. You do the same thing with Onesimus here. He's given an example of how these two Christians are, are supposed to relate to each other even though one has, has wronged the other in the past. Think back to Jesus. Look at the life that Jesus lived, the perfect example for us. Continually through his ministry, he was ridiculed by people around him. There were people constantly seeking to silence him, seeking to kill him at times. He was lied about. He was wrongfully accused, wrongfully tried. He was beaten to a point that most people die during those beatings. They never make it to the cross. They die right there in a puddle of blood. But he made it through that beatings and then was taken to the cross and hung. And then Jesus makes a statement, probably one of the most profound and greatest examples of forgiveness that we have anywhere in the Bible. In Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them, Father. I can't say for sure, but I can only imagine that none of us has ever experienced what Jesus went through during his time here on earth. In his short 30-something years he was here, the agony and the pain that he went through, not only physically but emotionally for people rejecting him, and yet look at the forgiveness he still had in his heart for the people who had done him wrong. And some of you may be thinking, like, hold on a second. You had told us this, this lesson was going to be about how two brothers relate to each other. Christ wasn't abandoned and turned away by faithful Christians. Onesimus wasn't a Christian when he left Philemon, when he did something wrong to him. So what about a situation where you now have two Christians who can't get along with each other, that a Christian has done another Christian wrong? How's that, how's that situation supposed to be handled? There's a great example of that in the New Testament. Turn with me to Acts. Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. You have Paul and Barnabas here that has been traveling with each other and preaching around their area for some time trying to spread the word of, the word of Jesus and the word of God. I'm sure many of you have done this before. I've done it several times, had to travel for business. For work, they send you off to a different state. I've even been to a different country before. And you travel with people who may just be business acquaintances with you. You don't really have a very good relationship necessarily. You just kind of know each other a little bit. You don't know each other's personal lives. When you travel with somebody like that, you're going to bond in some way. You're going to start to learn each other a little bit more in depth. You're going to learn about the other one's family probably just from interacting with each other. I can just imagine the relationship that Paul and Barnabas have with each other. Them traveling around and preaching together. And not only are they just, they're just around each other, they share a very common interest with each other. And that interest being spreading the word of God, trying to, trying to baptize people, make Christians for God's kingdom. So the relationship that they have, I can just imagine as being very good friends. Let's look in verse 35. Begin reading Acts 15, verse 35. It says, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take, him, should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. 
this almost sounds like a situation I mentioned earlier where you have two Christians now who just can't get along, and they just say, you know what, you go do your thing, I'm doing my thing, we're not going to be around any, each other anymore, and everything will be fine. I mean, it, when you first read it, that's almost what this sounds like. But is that what really happened? Does the, Bible's give it, does the Bible give us any other indication of how Paul and Barnabas related to each other after this? Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let's we'll start reading in verse 1. And this is Paul speaking here. It says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Paul mentions Barnabas here, and he mentions him in such a way as positive. Paul's defending himself right here, and at the same time, he's defending Barnabas as well. It seems to me like he's sticking up for him, like they seem to have a, still a good friendship. So you have to ask yourself, was this letter, the first Corinthians, was it written before Paul and Barnabas had that dissension between each other, before they started having those tensions? Due to some other passages in 1 Corinthians, it's believed that this letter was written around A.D. 55 to 57, somewhere in that time frame. That would put it during the third missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas split ways during the second missionary journey. That means this letter in 1 Corinthians was written after the disagreement that they had. Paul doesn't seem to hold a grudge. There doesn't seem to be anything whatsoever in what's written that would even give any kind of indication there was ever a problem in the past. He obviously doesn't seem to have any kind of ill will toward the, towards Barnabas. What about Mark? We always hear about Paul and Barnabas and the split that they had. What about the relationship between Paul and Mark? Mark was the one this entire disagreement was about. Does Paul have any kind of grudge or ill will toward Mark because of this situation? Let's see what the Bible says. Turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. So read in verse 10, it says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. He says to welcome Mark. This is the same situation as we saw in 1 Corinthians when they're talking about Barnabas. There seems to be no ill will here. There seems to be no strife or tension between Paul and Mark from what Paul's saying. So again, you have to ask yourself, when was this letter written? Was it before the split that Paul and Barnabas had over Mark? It's believed that Colossians was written around A.D. 62, which puts it after the 1 Corinthians letter, which means it ha also happened after the split between Paul and Barnabas. Again, you see nothing in this writing that says there's any kind of ill will whatsoever between Paul and Mark. And Mark's the one the whole situation was about. If you look in Philemon 24, it actually says that Mark was with Paul. Again, Philemon was written around A.D. 62 to 63. Again, after that split between Paul and Barnabas. Now Mark is back with Paul. So you now have a situation where you have two Christians who already were Christians who have a disagreement between themselves, a disagreement the Bible says is so sharp they actually split ways from each other. From indications we get from the Bible, that situation was taken care of. We, it doesn't give us the indication how. It doesn't say whether or not they came back together, they talked about it, that they, they had a hug. They said We don't know what happened, but somehow this situation got fixed. 
There's one more important thing to point out from this. It's clear from the letters that we see written from what Paul and Barnabas both did. They didn't let anything of their personal relationship with each other get in the way of spreading the, spreading the word of God. Nothing about the work being done for the kingdom was hindered because of the relationship that they had with each other. Now let's think back. Do we have a relationship with a brother, somebody who's a Christian, and that relationship actually creates a situation to where we're not able to do something for God that we probably should be doing? The fact is this world's not perfect. It never will be. There are arguments are going to happen. We're going to have disagreements. People are going to do us wrong. We're going to do other people wrong. That's just the way that this world is. But what if now you have a disagreement with a brother and you actually want to try to fix the situation? You want to try to mend things between each other, but this brother won't have anything to do with it. What if he still holds a grudge against you? What if she's going out and she's talking badly about you to other people? How are we supposed to deal with this situation? A lot of people just want to brush it aside and say, look, I've tried. They won't talk to me. It's their problem now. Is that what the Bible tells us to do? Let's look first at some things that we should not do. And again, I want everybody to think of a situation in your life, whether it's now, whether it's been in the past, something that can make this relate to you personally. First thing you cannot do is you cannot let your relationship with other people affect your relationship with God. And that may sound kind of odd at first, but how many people in this world look at the church and say, I'm not going there. It's just full of a bunch of hypocrites. I see that person sitting down there in that pew, and I know what they've done in their life. I know what they've done to me, and they're sitting there like there's nothing wrong with them. And they have nothing to do with the church because of that. That person is allowing a personal relationship that they've had in their life with another Christian to get in the way of their relationship with God. We can't allow that to happen. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. First Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4, it says, And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Our faith should have nothing to do with the people that are around us, even the Christians that are around us. Our faith is with God. It is not with our brothers. Another thing that we cannot do, we cannot mistreat other people in our lives because we've been mistreated. We're going to be mistreated at times. We may have been in the past. It's probably going to happen again in the future. Like I said, this world is not perfect. But we cannot let our actions towards other people, especially towards other Christians, even towards the person who's done you wrong, we can't mistreat them back. The Bible's instructions for us and how we're supposed to live are, do not have conditions in them that says, okay, you're supposed to do this unless this has happened to you. The Bible doesn't, doesn't give us instructions like that. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31 says, Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Christ forgave us. We talked about earlier all the situations that, that Christ went through in his life, the agony he went through having to die on that cross. We put him on that cross. No, we may not have been physically there, but he died for our sins. Every time we commit a sin in our life, we drove that nail in Jesus' hands, in his feet. He was dying on that cross for us. 
he forgave us and had never even been around us. We should be willing to have that same forgiveness to the people who do us wrong in our lives. Jump back to Ephesians. We're staying in Ephesians 4. Let's jump back to verse 26. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. That's the third thing we cannot do. It doesn't say here, don't be angry. Anger is a very natural reaction that we have that is wired into our brains. But it says you do not sin in your anger. You cannot become so angry in a situation that you go off and you do something to somebody else. You do something that's against the word of God. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look at it real quick. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 15. It says, Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this become defiled. The fourth thing we can't do is we can't become bitter. If Christ is in our heart, there is absolutely no room in our hearts for bitterness. All right? The last thing we can't do, we can't start looking at our lives and judging our lives based on what other people are doing. You hear people a lot of times saying, What's wrong with what I'm doing? Look at what they're doing. Look at what they've done in their life. I'm not that bad. Why do I have to worry about what I'm doing? And you say, at least I'm better than that person. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians, it says people who judge themselves among themselves are not wise. I remember hearing a saying as a kid and growing up, and I've heard it several times, and for some reason it's always stuck with me. Come judgment day, God is not going to grade us on a curve. I know everybody knows what that is. Back in school, your teachers will give you a certain grade based on how the, other, the rest of the people in the class did. That's not going to happen someday. God is not going to judge us based on how everybody around us did. He is going to judge us based on his word, period. He's not going to say, well, you probably shouldn't get into heaven, but all the people around you were bad influences to you. You actually probably did better in life than they did, so okay, we'll let you in then. That's not going to happen. We're going to be judged individually on what we do in our lives. So there's some situations, some things that we can't do if we're wronged by a brother that won't repent. What should we do? How should we handle that situation? The first thing is, don't be surprised. I don't say that to be mean. I don't say that to be ill-hearted towards anybody. But we should not be surprised when something happens to us in our life, when somebody does us wrong, even when a Christian does us wrong. The simple fact is, everybody makes mistakes. People are going to do things wrong in this life. There's no way around it. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's not just worldly people and people that are non-Christians. That says everybody has sinned, Christians included. Somebody is going to do something wrong to you in their life, in your life, and it's going to happen. We can't be surprised about it. But with that being said, you've got to keep in mind, we have to understand the seriousness of the situation Turn with me to 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 20. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, <coughs> excuse me, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. This is a serious situation, probably for our brother that won't repent. 
we have to understand this may be a situation of spiritual life and death for them. Yes, we can't be surprised when something like this happens, but we also can't brush it away because our brother may be living out there in the world and their soul is now at risk because of what they've done. Next thing, we have to pray. Prayer is a powerful thing. We first have to pray for ourselves. We have to pray that God gives us the wisdom to know how to handle the situation. It's very easy for us to go in with the wrong kind of attitude and make the situation worse. We need to pray that God guides our thoughts and our decisions and how we communicate with the person to try to make the situation better. But we also need to pray for our brother. As I said, this may be a situation of spiritual life and death for them. The Bible tells us in James chapter 5, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We need to continue to pray for our brother. The next thing we have to do, and this is one that's hard for a lot of people to do, we have to seek to try to help our brother. We have to try to help them see the error of their ways and to turn back to God. And a lot of people say, hey, this is between them and God. I've tried. They don't want to have anything to do with me. It's not my problem anymore. This is their problem. If I go and try to stay involved with it, it's only going to make things worse. That's a very easy thing to think. It's something I've probably thought myself in the past. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1 says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. This isn't an option for us. This is something that God tells us to do. This is a command. Jeff touched on it this morning, the, the ways we, we get from the Bible of what we're supposed to, supposed to do. You have command, example, and necessary inference. This is commanded. You bear one another's burdens. You don't sweep this under the rug and let it, and just hope that it's going to go away. We have a duty to help our brother. James 5 also talks about that if you bring another one back from their sins, that you've now turned a brother back to Christ and you have covered an entire multitude of sins. Like I said, this may be a spiritual life and death situation for your brother. How can we as Christians sit aside and watch them be in that situation and not want to do something about it? Even if it's a situation where they've done us wrong, and we're the ones that's been affected by it. We still have a duty, according to the Bible, to go to them, try to help them see the error of their ways, and try to bring them back to Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. I want everybody to turn and look at this. There's several verses we want to look, I want to look at in Matthew 18. Let's start in verse 15. It says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. This says if your brother sins against you. That's exactly what I'm wanting to talk about. This is between two Christians. They've done something wrong to you. This tells us here, you go to them. You go and tell them what they've done to you. And if they hear you, you've gained your brother back. You've covered that multitude of sins. It's very possible they don't know they've done something to us. They may have no idea that what they've done has hurt us. By you going to them and confronting them about it, you bring it to light, and they're like, hey, I, I didn't know. I'm sorry. You've now fixed a situation that if we just kind of brush to the side, you now have tension for who knows how long between the two of you. Keep in mind, this is to be done in gentleness. This is not to be done out of any kind of hatred toward them. This is not done so you can come and confront them, point your finger in their face, and tell them what they've done wrong to you. This is to be done to try to help them come back to Christ out of love. But notice one thing it did not say. It did not say you go talk to other people. 
It says you go to your brother and you go to him privately. You go to him alone. You don't take people with you. You don't go and talk to your family about it. It doesn't even say you go talk to the elders about it. It says you go to your brother and you talk to him about what's been done. Let's say we do that. Let's say we do that and our brother doesn't want to hear it, still doesn't want to have anything to do with us. Let's continue reading, verse 16. It says, But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. Second step, you go back to him. Now you take some witnesses with you. You take some Christian people that you trust, and you go, you go back to your brother to try again to fix the situation. And again, this is done out of love. This is not so that you can overpower them. You have strength in numbers that you can kind of bully them into a situation. That's not what this is trying to do. This is, again, going in love, trying to get your brother to come back to you. The concept of having witnesses in a situation dates back into the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, it talks about a man can be put to death, but only by the mouth of two or three witnesses. There's reason for these witnesses. Well, first off, by having witnesses there, you now have a few more people that your brother who has sinned, they now know that other people know about this. That might just be the influence they need to say, look, I don't want to make a big deal about it. I'm sorry. Let's, let's fix this thing. That may be the influence that they need to come back to Christ. And second, the Bible very plainly says, it says that they may give an account of every word, that every word may be established. They're there to physically be witnesses. They're there to hear what is being said so that if a situation ever comes up in the future, you don't, you don't have the issue of people not believing you, that you've done what you can. Let's say you've gone to them by yourself. Let's say you've gone to them now with witnesses, and they still don't want to hear you. They still don't want to have anything to do with you. Let's keep reading. Let's read in verse 17. It said, if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. The final step is you take it to the congregation. This is to be publicly addressed to the congregation. This is not to be done to try to humiliate anybody. This is to be done out of love. Again, basically, you can consider the congregation now as a full body of witnesses, just like the two or three witnesses you took with you the first time. This whole situation can be an entire sermon in and of itself, so I won't go into a lot of detail in it. But a lot of people have issues with this, that, hey, I don't want to air my dirty laundry out there. If I can't get them, get the situation fixed, let's just leave it alone and let's not bring it up and we'll just kind of pretend it doesn't exist and it'll just go away. The fact is, this is what the Bible says to do. Again, this isn't an option for us. The Bible tells us specifically this is how you are to handle it. And if you take it before the congregation and they still will not come back to Christ, they still will not ask forgiveness for what they've done, it says you're to treat them like a heathen and a tax collector. Again, this is to be done out of love. This is to try to influence the person to come back to Christ. You hear a lot of people saying, it's like, well, hold on a second. Don't we want people in the church? If we shun somebody, isn't that just going to turn them away from completely? And now they're, they're completely gone from the church? That's not what this is about. If that's the decision they make, then that's the decision they make. That's between them and God. But this is commanded by God that we do to try to bring somebody back to him. A lot of people want to stop right there after verse 17 when you talk about how you're to deal with somebody. Let's keep reading. Let's keep reading in verse 18. It says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done by them, done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, 
I'm there in the midst of them. Look at verse 20 again. Where two or three of you are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst. I've heard that verse all my life, but I've always heard it talking about worship. That where two or three Christians come together to worship, I'm there in the midst of you. That's not the context that this is in. The context that this is in is how you deal with an Aryan brother. So what's it talking about where it says where two or three are gathered together in my name? Didn't God say you take two or three witnesses with you to go and confront your brother? Didn't he say you take it before the congregation? Those can't be easy things to do. They'd be very difficult for us individually to have to go and do that. What comfort can we get from this verse? God said two or three of you go and you're in my name. I'm in the midst of you. He says, I'm standing there beside you on your side. I'm supporting you in what you're doing. Yes, it may be difficult to go to this brother and confront him about this, but I'm standing there right beside you. I give you my full support of what you're doing. That's got to give a lot of comfort and confidence to us when we carry through with what the Bible tells us to do. So with that being said now, let's go back to those first questions I asked earlier in the sermon. Have we ever been upset when an Aryan brother comes back to Christ? Again, think about that for a second. That's an important question. Have we ever been upset because we have seen somebody come back to Christ? Has a brother ever done us wrong? Have we always handled it correctly? Have we done what the Bible has told us to do, how to handle that situation, or have we just brushed it to the side and hoped it would go away? We just avoid that brother. They avoid us. We just kind of keep our distance from each other, and everything's fine. That's not what the Bible tells us to do. We asked the question earlier, how many sins does it take for us to, to lose heaven? How many sins does it take for us to have to go to hell someday? According to the Bible, it's one sin. If we don't handle these situations with our brother like the Bible tells us to do, there's one sin. That will send us to hell. It doesn't sound good. We don't want to think about it. But this situation, if we just brush something like this to the side and ignore it, that's sinning. That is not what God told us to do and how we're supposed to handle these situations. That's the one thing that could take to send us to hell. So now let's ask that other question. Where are we going? Are we 100% sure of our spiritual destiny? Where we're going when this life is over, are we sure we're going to heaven? Or is there a question in our mind about it? It doesn't have to be this. It could be any other sin. Anything else that we have living in our life that we won't let go of. No matter what it is, that's the one thing that could keep us out of heaven. If you have that situation in your life, you need to come back to Christ. We want you to come back to Christ. We want to do everything we can to help you in that situation to come back. There's no point in losing heaven over something like this. Something so trivial that we won't let go of. Or it may be a situation you're not even a Christian at all. Brother Jeff went over in detail this morning what it takes to become a Christian. So I won't spend a lot of time covering back over it. Very simply, John 8, 24, you've got to believe. You've got to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Luke 3, 15, you've got to repent of your sins. You have to recognize those sins and you have to turn back away from them. Romans 10, 10, you've got to confess before others that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. In 1 Peter 3.21, you have to be baptized into his name. That's it. Re Revelations tells us you then have to live a faithful life. You have to continue living for Christ. That's a very simple set of steps there. 
Brother Lester pointed out in, in his Bible study this morning, there may be a lot of things in this Bible that seem difficult to understand. The basics to salvation are not. They are very simple to understand. It doesn't take a lot of great intelligence. It doesn't take a lot of money. God laid it out to where anybody can understand this and become a Christian. We've got everything ready here tonight. We have the baptistry here behind us. We can take your confession. We can baptize you tonight. Why would you put it off? If we know that there's one sin can send us to hell, if you're not a Christian, every sin that you've ever committed in your life is still on that plate. It's never been wiped clean. So everybody in here tonight has, has heard what we need to do. Why would we wait? If tonight, if anybody goes to hell because we're not a Christian, there's no longer an excuse now. We can't stand before God and say, hey, I didn't know. I wasn't ready yet. Everybody in here tonight has heard. So if we stand before God someday and he says, depart from me, I never knew you, there's not a thing we can say about it. It will be our own fault. If you want to become a Christian tonight, we want to take care of that for you. If maybe you have a situation in your life where you still have sin that you won't let go of, tonight's the night to let go of that. We want to pray for you. If those situations are described in your life, we'll ask that you come forward as we stand and sing.